Uh, let me pray, and, and then we'll get started. Father, we are thankful to you, thankful to you that you love us, that out of the overflow of your love, you created us and you have redeemed us. Thankful that you sent your son. And we're thankful for Jesus who has purchased grace for us, mercy, pardon, forgiveness of sins, righteousness. He is our Savior. To Him alone we look. He is our hope, our justification, our sanctification. He is our eternal inheritance. We're thankful for the sending of the Spirit. He is our helper, our advocate. He is our comforter, the one who strengthens us, who points us to your son Jesus, who witnesses to him, who gives us life, faith and joy in Christ, the guarantee of our inheritance. We are thankful for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the salvation that we have because of you. We pray that as we consider your word this afternoon, as we talk about the responsibilities of a of ascending church and, and what that looks like biblically and how that might get articulated in the lives of our, and expressed in the lives of our churches, we pray that that you would be exalted. We pray that you would guard my lips from saying more than Scripture says for making our own church's wisdom or application into law. Father, that we would be helpful to one another as we consider what your Word says and as I teach that Word, that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a bit about the story of sort of the missions awakening that happened for me um, and a little bit of what happened as a result in the planting of the church that I currently pastor and the beginning of Radius, etc. Um, years ago, I had taken a, pa- a job as a youth pastor at a mega church in my city and uh, had the privilege of working with several hundred youth. And during that time, I think Brad mentioned this in the introduction of me yesterday, during that time I got to know Brad. And I had heard some sermons Brad was preaching about missions, and then he had suggested to me a book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad, and I began to read that book and uh, reconsider what it is that my whole ministry was even about. I was convicted to the core as to whether or not what I was doing was even... uh, what the Lord had called me to, and what did this look like, and how would this get worked out in my life, and what ought to change in my family, and what ought to change in the way I preach, and what ought to change in the way I pastor other people, and, and what about my own future? Should I be thinking about doing something other than what I was currently doing, etc.? Um, and a- along the way, as I was moving toward a, a greater understanding that, that Jesus needs to be proclaimed in all the earth, that, that the Father saved me, and, and the Father pursued me in Christ, and And the Father has now sent us to, as those who are in Christ, to now go and make Christ known where he is not. As I was thinking that through, um, one of the guys I was working with at the time, he was the junior high pastor with me, um, had served with me as an intern, and um, one of my closest friends, he was considering going into missions as well. And he actually was thinking at the time about going out with new tribe missions, and so he, he said to me, well, have you considered um, you and your wife going with, your family going with with my family. And I said, nope, I haven't considered that. Uh, he's like, well, you should pray about that. And I said, okay. And so I said, I, I know what I'll do. I'll write to Brad Buser. I'll write him an email and ask Brad, what, what do you think, Brad, should I go? Um, with Joseph, by the way, the guy Joseph is now on staff with Radius. Um, should I go with, with Joseph and Jessica? Should my wife and I go with them? Or, or what do you think we ought to do? Now, here's the thing. When I sent off that email I was certain that my life was going to change because I was certain Brad was going to write me back w- with a long email telling me exactly why I should go. This is, here's why you should go. 
Um, I had been to hear Brad preach numerous times, and every time I left one of those sessions, I was convinced that all of us were in sin for not going. <laughs> all of us. I walked out every time thinking, I have wasted every day of my life till now, and it's got to change. And uh, so I was confident that I would hear back from him. You know, you, you ask people for advice, and you sort of ask for the advice you want to hear. So I was confident I was going to hear back from him, yes, you should go. And it was going to be like, okay, now I finally have a, a word from the Lord. Not that I'm confusing the Lord with Brad, but you understand. <laughs> so, so, so I get this email back from Brad, and, and you know... One of the things that irritates me about email is was when you send an email and people say to you, oh, I didn't like your tone. And you think, tone? I wrote an email. There's no tone. I didn't raise my voice. You can't see any facial expressions. What do you mean tone? Well, Brad Buser can communicate tone in an email, like few people I know. And so I get an email back from Brad, and, and in the email, in all caps, it says, you should not go. And I took it as a word from the Lord. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, did Brad just tell me not to go? Now, over the years, I had only heard of one other person who Brad had told not to go, and that guy was dying of brain cancer. <laughs> True story. So I thought, well, what's he saying to me? Um, until I heard Francis speak this morning. He told Francis not to go, and I felt much better. But... Uh, um, Brad encouraged me to stay, and, and he actually gave me his rationale. Here's what he said, and there was a caveat to the not going. He said, listen, I, want you to, I, I would encourage you to stay and, and raise up people who will go, because there are very few pastors I know who are interested in actually raising up people to go, and so I'd encourage you to stay and raise up people who will go, but he added a caveat. He said this, if you aren't, if you aren't being effective in sending people, then perhaps you need to rethink it and go yourself. So I said, okay, fair enough. So I began to pray that way, and I planted the church that I pastor currently, and I told the church in an early sermon, maybe a year in, I was preaching, and I said, listen, here's, here's the bottom line. If some of you don't go, then I'm, I'm going to go. Um, and by the grace of God, um, through the, over the years of that church being planted and growing, uh, we were able to help start Radius International we were able to send out people. We actually are sending out several now. Um, and, and they're going to unreached people groups. And we thank God for that. And, and I, I tell that story just so you understand that from the beginning of our church plant till now, and it only grows, we've had a conviction as a church. And, and I, I think it's a biblical conviction. And I'm hoping to show you today that it's a biblical conviction. And, and here's what it centrally is. It is the local church's responsibility. It is the local church's responsibility to engage in sending people to reach the unreached. You hear that? I, I'm arguing that this is a biblical assertion. It is the local church's responsibility to engage in sending people to reach the unreached. I do not mean... I do not mean that every local church will have missionary candidates. Though you should certainly pray for and work for having those kinds of candidates. And I do not mean that every local church will have the financial resources to fully fund a bunch of missionaries. Though you ought to certainly pray and sacrificially budget and give to this end. What I mean is that sending missionaries to the unreached is the responsibility of your local church. You ought to be participating in that in some way, in as much as, what maybe I should say, as you are able by the kind providence of God and the way he's blessed your church. He's blessed my church with a lot of young, um, gifted people who are willing and ready to go and who are stepping forward, and he's blessed our church as well with several people who want to give to that end. And so we're thankful for that. But I don't know how the Lord has worked in your particular church with regard to the general population of the church and the kind of money that comes into that church and what you can actually do, here's what I do know. Your church is responsible to send missionaries to the unreached. Senior pastors, I really want you to hear me on this if you're a senior pastor in here. Sending is not the job of a few odd folks in your congregation involved in your missions program. And I say that because I'm not kidding you. I'm going to let you in a little secret because you're all seem to be missions folks generally in your church 
people think that the people on the missions committee are a little bit odd, particularly maybe your senior pastor. Look at they come in and they wear those like shirts from other countries. Don't they know that this isn't like Mission Sunday, but here they are, right? But it's not just their job. God bless them for being there and pushing the church in that direction, but it's not just their job. Sending is your past, part of your pastoral calling. Sending is the responsibility of your church. And I want to establish that prior to speaking about principles for sending. I was given this, this um, title, Difficult Issues the Church Must Face Regarding Their Candidates and Finances. I, I suppose I'll hit on difficult issues that you must face, but really I'm going to focus a little bit more positively on what are the biblical, uh, if you will, responsibilities of ascending church. I was already given a difficult task yesterday, so I thought today I would take a more positive one. Anyway, look with me at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, you're familiar with this passage. Nothing I will say here as far as reading this passage will be of surprise to you, but perhaps one, one fact, and it will be. Matthew chapter 28. And look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, and notice that word, them, said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that as we look at this passage, we ought to be asking the question right off, as we cite the Great Commission, to whom is Jesus speaking? To whom is he speaking? If you notice there in verse 18, it says he came and said to them. If you look at the end of verse 20, all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you, always the end of the age. Who's he speaking to? Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. In other words, he's speaking to the 12, though as you know at this point, there aren't 12. Because one of them, um, Judas Iscariot, has betrayed the Christ. So there's 11. He's speaking to 11. He's not speaking to you in the pew. He's speaking to the you he's talking to. The 11. Now I want you to hold on because you're going to start getting all, all in, in a bunch here about, are you saying the Great Commission's not for us? Just wait. I'm saying that originally he had an audience and you weren't there. Might be a surprise. You weren't there. You weren't present for it. You're not being talked to here. Jesus was talking to real people in history. You weren't one of them. Okay, go to Luke 24. Verse 44. Then he said to them, now Jesus is speaking again. He's appeared. This is post-resurrection. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, and, sorry, suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, to whom is Jesus speaking? To whom is he speaking? Verse 33. And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. In other words, there's the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, they go and find the eleven, and the others are gathered with them, and they start to talk, and Jesus enters and begins to speak to them. Who is he speaking to? Largely the eleven, the apostles. Now the other people are present, but he's setting apart the apostles as the witnesses. You'll actually see this as very technical language in the book of Acts. If you spend any time reading the book of Acts, the, the, the term witness is not just a generic label thrown on anybody. 
It's actually given to the apostles in almost every instance in which it's used. Go, go through it and read it. He's speaking to them. They're going to be his witnesses. And this promise in Acts 1.8, look there, Acts 1.8. You're very familiar with this as well. I, I'm citing these passages to a group of people who are obviously interested in missions, which means you're intimately familiar with these passages. But Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this is a promise in Acts 1.8, incidentally. If you go to Matthew 28, there's a command. Here in Acts 1.8, there's no imperative here. This is a promise. This is what's going to happen with you apostles. Now, how do I know he's speaking to the apostles? Well, if you just look up at, um, look up at verse 2... He says, until the day he was taken up, Jesus was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to who? The apostles, whom he had chosen. Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. In other words, he's speaking to the apostles. He's speaking to the apostles. And he's speaking about a historical promise that was historically fulfilled. I, I, I just want to take this little caveat and say this to you. Jerusalem is not your local area samaria is not you know the town just outside of your local area and the end of the earth isn't like you know the next state over these are historical places there's a city called jerusalem the apostles were going to be witnesses in jerusalem there is an area a region called judea an area called Samaria. The apostles were going to be witnesses there. The end of the earth speaks of the Gentiles. The apostles were going to be witnesses among the Gentiles. We see that fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, they preach to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, they preach in Samaria. Acts chapter 10, it begins to go to the God-fearing Gentiles. Cornelius and his household. We see it played out. So if these commands and promises, if you were, or if you will, were given to the apostles, if the promise of Acts 1-8 was given to them, then why do I argue it's your local church's responsibility? See, because that's what I'm arguing, that it's your local church's responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission, to make Jesus known in every tribe, tongue, and people. And at the same time, I'm telling you that all these passages were not given directly to you. They were given to the apostles. So how can I say both? Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? Why do I argue that this is a pastoral responsibility? Well, I want to give you three three reasons why I'm arguing this. Um, First, the apostles were the foundation of the church. They're the foundation of the church, and thus we carry on their work. Right? Ephesians 2.20, what does Paul say? The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. And what are we? We're, being, we're the church being built on top of them, aren't we? They've laid the foundation. We're carrying on their work. Think about the relationship between a building and its foundation. You have a, a foundation, you have a building built on top of it. The apostles are the foundation of the church, and we're carrying on their work. We're not relaying the foundation, folks. We're not Relaying the foundations. That's why Acts 1-8 is not a paradigm for your church's missions program. Should not be anyway. Acts 1-8 is a, a promise that was historically fulfilled. Now we're going to the Gentiles. But the foundation's been laid. Jerusalem was reached. Judea and Samaria were reached. The gospel began to go to the Gentiles. And that is continued on by Paul as he wants to go name Christ where he's not been named, everywhere he's not been named. And we're building on that foundation. Second argument, the church in Acts understanding this, the church in Acts understanding that they're building upon the apostolic foundation began picking up the responsibility to spread the gospel. They understood that and so we begin to see that example in their life, if you will. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. You, you are familiar with the preaching and martyrdom of Stephen, one of the seven. As, as after Stephen's martyred, Saul begins to ravage the church, and as he does, he says that, that the church begins to scatter. In verse 4, we read this of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered 
went about doing what? Preaching the word. Now, who are those who were scattered who went about preaching the word? Well, minimally, we know that includes Philip because he goes down to the city of Samaria in the very next verse. But it actually goes beyond Philip. We know that because specifically Acts chapter 11. Look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 19 where Luke begins to pick up the story of the church in Antioch. Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now the Hellenists here is likely just the Greeks, not the Greek-speaking Jews exclusively, but the Greeks. In other words, here are people who are scattered. They aren't apostles. They aren't even part of the seven. They're not part of the twelve. They're not part of the seven from Acts 6. They are just average folks scattered about, and what, they're, what are they doing? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Third, the apostles expect the local church to send in support. So we see that the apostles of the foundation, we're being built upon that foundation, and the foundation is one that takes the gospel to the end of the earth. We're being built upon that, so we are continuing that work as well, and we see that modeled in the early church. And three, the apostles expect the local church to send in support. Look at, for example, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. As Paul has written the letter to Rome, um, one of the purposes of that letter you may be familiar with is a, is a missionary support letter. A lot of people don't read Romans as a missionary support letter, but if, if you don't understand that that's one of Paul's purposes in writing this letter, you're going to miss a lot about this letter. You're going to get caught up in 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11, and think that this is just a doctrinal treatise that Paul's writing some kind of systematic theology he wants you to have and just wrestle with, and you're going to miss that Paul's dealing with conflicts between Jews and Gentiles in the church, that Paul's also dealing with trying to raise support as a missionary and justify why he wants to go to unreached people groups. So in verse 22, he begins to write to them about the reason he so often had been, been hindered in coming to them, and he goes on in verse 24, if you go there, and he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, all, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now catch that. He says they owe it to the Jews. They are sharing their spiritual blessings, so they owe it to them to help them, the Jewish church. Paul can say that of himself. I'm under obligation. I'm indebted to both what? Greeks and barbarians, right? I'm indebted to them. Now, how, why is he in debt to them? Because he shares their common humanity. He shares their common plight. He's damned with them, and now he has the gospel, and they don't. He didn't deserve the gospel more than they did. So he owes it to them to preach it to them. They might have the same opportunity, if you will, that he has to be saved. So he's indebted, and he's saying they're indebted. In other words, part of this is the expectation on the part of the apostles that, that when you get saved, you owe it to people who haven't heard to make it known to them. And then he goes on, he says this, when therefore, look at verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So I'm going to come to you. You're going to help the church in Jerusalem. Um, and, but when I come, I want to be helped on my way to Spain by you. In other words, there's an expectation that the church in Rome shares Paul's debt, if you will, not only to the Jews materially, but to all people spiritually. They share it with him. And so he's expecting when I come, I expect you're going to help me reach the unreached. I mean, it, it, could you imagine if a missionary sent you a letter where it just said, um, you know, you owe it to people to come to know Christ, so when I come to your house for coffee, I expect you're going to write me a check. 
Some of you might be thinking about doing that. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I'm not encouraging that. Philippians 2, seeing this, Philippians 2, this expectation that the church would be involved. That's the church at Rome. Let's see what Paul says to the church at Philippi. Verse 25, Philippians 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. In other words, the church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to help out Paul. Now look what he says. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only in him, but on, on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to do what? Complete what was lacking in your service to me. See, they owed it to Paul to send Epaphroditus to them. Church at Philippi did. Church of Rome, they owed it to Paul to help him get to Spain, to make Christ known. Now, why do they owe it to Paul? Not ultimately because they're indebted specifically to Paul, as if they owe him something personally, but they owe it to Paul in that he is a missionary going to unreached people groups, and they, as those who've received the gospel, owe it to unbelievers to make sure they get to hear it too. He goes on, he just expects upon them, look at Third John, Third John. Not a book you probably look at much. Third John. Verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Hear that? Brothers, you've been supporting these gospel missionaries, these gospel ministers. It's a great thing you've been doing in doing that. And by the way, you ought to support them. You ought to. And when you do, you're what? You're a fellow worker for the truth. In other words, the apostles found of the church, we continue building on that foundation in proclaiming the gospel of the lost and in planting churches among those who have not heard. But take note that this is not just the responsibility of some college kid who goes to a missions conference or goes to perspectives and feels personally convicted. This is the church's responsibility. It's Philippi's responsibility to participate with Paul in reaching the unreached. It's Rome's responsibility to participate with Paul in reaching the unreached. It's the church of Gaius, the elder Gaius, to whom John writes and says your responsibility, the church's responsibility, to participate in making the gospel known where it is not. It's the church's responsibility. I, I want you to hold this. It isn't your missions committee responsibility. It isn't some kid who goes to a missions conference's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. So what are some of the biblical responsibilities churches have been given? Let me, let me give you the first one, calling and commissioning. Did you hear that? Calling and commissioning, biblical responsibility of the church. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Calling and commissioning, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is a fascinating passage. When I say calling and commissioning, um, I, I want to, I've come to the church in Antioch just to emphasize the fact that calling to mission is not a private individual vocation. It's a corporate churchly vocation. 
Paul and Barnabas are set apart by their church. Now, you might say the Holy Spirit sets them apart. That's right. But what's interesting is the Holy Spirit sets them apart. They fast and pray, lay their hands on them. So, and then they're sending them off and sent them off. See the end of verse 3? And they sent them off. Who's, the, who's doing the action of the verb there? The church is. Now look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? The church is doing the action of sending them off, but then Luke can come in and describe it as being sent by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is actually working through the church to send people out. When the church sends, the Holy Spirit sends. By the way, this dynamic is not only true to sending out of missionaries. You can see that, for example, in Acts chapter 20 as Paul addresses the elders at Ephesus. What does he say? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, they were selected, we would imagine, initially in Ephesus by Paul. And later in Ephesus, uh, when Timothy's sent there to clean up the mess and reappoint elders, they're appointed by Timothy. Yet... Paul can say, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The church sent them out, yet Luke can say, the Holy Spirit sent you out. It's important to consider. That means you're not waiting for, as a church, you're not waiting for someone to come along. Well, one day we'll get into missions when we have a person who's into missions. But until then, we'll just wait for someone who finally feels the responsibility to be engaged. You bear the responsibility as a local church. So you're regularly obeying Jesus' command, for example, to pray for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest. You're teaching the congregation God's mission to see Christ proclaimed in all the earth. And that just ought not to just hit your sermons occasionally. That'll be what it means to be a part of membership in your church. You know, um, I'm not saying this to critique Rick Warren, so please don't take it as a critique of Rick Warren. But one of the things that became quite popular in the, uh, particularly the 90s and early 2000s was the purpose-driven church. Most of you have heard of the purpose-driven life. That was wildly popular. Purpose-driven church was also quite popular as a model for pastors. One of the things that Rick Warren did that was helpful in there was he talked about how churches ought to set up very clear processes for helping people understand what it means to be engaged in their own local church. How do you become a member? What does that look like? How do you communicate that clearly, especially if you're growing? And, and so that's, that's a, those are helpful sets of questions and sort of suggestions he was giving. But one of the things he did is he, I think, unintentionally created a bit of a problem um, or, or created a bit of a misunderstanding of what it means to be a member of a church because he talked about these bases. Anybody ever go through the bases of their church? Base one. First base, membership. Second base, maturity. Third base, ministry. Home plate, missions. Anybody ever do that? So you become a, you become a member in your church, by hit, you, and, and the church has hit a single, right? If, if somebody becomes a missionary, though, the church has hit a home run. You follow? Okay? Here's the problem. Membership, first base, is as far as you ever had to be to, to be a member of the church. Didn't have to move to spiritual maturity. Didn't have to move to ministry. Didn't have to move to missions. My, my problem with that is, I, I think Rick Warren intended people to go through all the bases. Right? So what we did is, we restructured our membership as we just said, listen, until they've gone through maturity and, if you will, mission, they're not members of the church. They need to be trained, before they're members of our church, they need to be trained and what missions is, and what our responsibility is in it. Or they ought not to be members in our church, because we're on mission together as a church to make Christ known across the, uh, the planet, if you will, and if, if they don't know him, and how to make him known, and their responsibility, they're not going to be fully functioning members of this church. So we require that training. Three hours of training on missions. I, I would encourage you guys, expect it of your members. They're members of Christ's body. They ought to know their responsibility to making the gospel known. Bring in missionaries who encourage folks to go. Be meeting with those who you think have the character and capacity to go. Challenge them to do so. The most effective mobilizer in our church's history was a guy who decided to go. One of our guys, Rob, he's here. I won't say anything else besides Rob. Rob decided he was going to go. 
And so he decided he was going to mobilize because he was going to get people to go with him. He's a very social guy. He doesn't like to do things by himself. So he went and found, tried to look for friends to go. And so he's like me. I, I can't even clean up my backyard without some friends coming over to help, right? It's too solo. So Rob sort of, di- uh, you know, sort of gauged the same way. So he, he goes out and starts asking people to go. Initially, I thought this is the most brilliant fundraising strategy ever. Would, would you like to go give up your life to live among an unreached people group with me? No, but I will write you a check. <laughs> you know, but anyway, so. But in all seriousness, as he met with people, they started calling me saying, what do you think? I mean, Brad Buser's been here. Brooks Buser's been here. Brandon Buser's been here. The Buser's are prolific of missions, but they've all been here. And I've heard them talk about missions. And I've thought about, I, I've, I've thought about, isn't, aren't missions great? I ought to pray for our missionaries. I ought to write checks to our missionaries. But I never, ever considered the fact that maybe I should go until Rob came and asked me. For the first time, I thought, oh, maybe they were talking to me. I, I would encourage you to start asking people. See somebody who's got the character and the competence? Go say, hey, you know what? Maybe you should go. The church bears a responsibility of sending to the unreached. That, that, that was the focus in Antioch. It was the focus of Paul. Um, not just of sending, but sending to the unreached. L- look at Romans 15 again. I had you there before. Go back there. You'll see this in passion in Paul, and it's striking. Verse 18, he says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum. Anybody know where Illyricum is? Modern-day Albania. Southern part of modern-day Albania. Think about what a stretch of land that is. And cities and peoples. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's a stunning statement. But then look what he goes on in verse 22. Just drop down to verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you passing as I go to Spain. Did you hear what he just said? I fulfilled my ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. There's no more room for me in these regions. Now, that's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, the city of Antioch, for example, was about 500,000 people. That was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So um, it, you're, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, and if you total up these cities, potentially millions of people. Far less than 1% of them were reached. Far less had ever heard of Jesus or were Christian. Yet Paul says there's no room for him. Now, if your pastor stood up in your city, in his pulpit, my city's 500,000 people, about 10% are professing church-going Christians. Now, I want to make a distinction there. That's the American Religious Data Archive says that. If, you, if, I, if I back up and say, probably 85% of them say they're Christian, but actually engage in a church, it's about 10%, okay? Evangelical church, about 40-something percent in the Roman Catholic church, but 10% or so in evangelical church. Now, if I stood up in the pulpit and said, you know, 450,000 people here don't know Jesus, but there's no more room for me in Bakersfield to preach the gospel. I'd be run out on a rail. What do you mean there's no more room for you to preach the gospel? Almost none of my neighbors are believers. None of my coworkers are believers. None of my family members are believers. There's plenty of gospel preaching that needs to happen right here. Nope, I'm going to go somewhere else. Those people have never heard it. I'm going to go there. But there's so many people around us who are unbelievers. And they're right, aren't they? So many. So what's Paul getting at when he says there's no more room? Paul does not mean there's no more room, i.e. everybody's saved. So 
to define it, he says in verse 20, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. In other words, because there was a church in that city, Christ was named there. You could say, but the vast majority of those people, 99% plus of those people, had never heard the name of Christ, yet Paul says Christ has already been named there. It's already been named there. There's no more room for me. I want to go name him where he hasn't been named. But as is written, those who've never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. But what about my neighbor across the street who grew up as a pagan? I have neighbors who've grown up as pagans. I live, you know, I'm, you guys probably do as well. And what if they, but they've never been told and never heard. It's true. They haven't. But they don't fit Paul's definition because my church is in Bakersfield. I live across the street from them. I can go reach them, right? The gospel, the word of God is in their language. Christ is in their city, if you will, in his church. So our church has a responsibility to saturate the area with evangelism. But we also have the responsibility to support guys like Paul who are going and making Christ known in this way in people groups who've never heard. They have no access. None. Less than 1%, though, of church missions money is being spent on reaching those to whom Paul gave the priority in missions. This is Paul's priority in missions. People groups have never heard. What's American evangelicalism's priority in missions? People who already have heard. Over 99% of missions money coming from the American evangelical church is spent on people who've already heard. Your church is in that town. Your church should reach that town. Right? People ask me all the time, what's your outreach program to your church? I mean, to your city. My church is our outreach program. I mean, but, but what are you doing for local missions? My church is local people. We're sharing the gospel with local people. That's what we exist to do. Now there's these people who've never heard we also need to go and take the gospel to. I mean, does it concern you that of the billions of dollars being spent in missions, less than 1% are going to the people Paul prioritizes? What about your church budget? What percentage of your church budget goes to that? How about your own, your own giving As a church, we decided actually at our church that we would not really fund anything else in missions but this. That's all we fund. Reaching unreached people groups. Now, you, you, you might say, that's easy. You planted a church. You don't have to clean up other people's messes. You just create your own. That's exactly right. That's why I did that. <laughs> I don't have the patience to clean up the messes of others. I'll just create my own. I really live well with my own messes. So it's the brothers who follow me that I feel sorry for. But we, we've just decided... 100% of our money is going there, and the reason is not because there's not a lot of other good things to do in the world. There's a million good things to do in the world. We can't possibly do them all, so where are we going to prioritize putting our money? We're going to prioritize putting our money where nobody else is putting it, frankly. We're going to put our efforts where no one else seems to be putting them. We're going to try to do this one thing well. So that's what we spend our money on. That's what we spend our people on. Your church is also not only responsible, by the way, when I said first for calling and, if you will, um, commissioning, for qualifying and training. Part of the calling of missionaries includes the church's responsibility to qualify and train them. People um, can tell you they have an internal calling, and that's very nice. And Brad doesn't like that at all, by the way. But that's nice. Somebody says, I have an internal calling. Great, okay. But, but they necessarily must have an external calling from the church. Right? I, there's not a lot in the Bible about internal calling, but external calling is clear. An external call is, is to be of those who are rightly qualified and trained. For example, 2 Timothy 2.2, what does Paul say? Speaking to Timothy, first generation, says to, Paul, uh, to Timothy, Timothy what? Timothy entrust these things, entrust these things. There's, there's a teaching there, isn't there? There's a training. I've got to, I've got to entrust these things. To who? Faithful men. Now, now notice that. They're qualified. They're faithful men. 
and they're trained, the things are being entrusted to them, who will be able to teach others also. That's the pastor's responsibility in the church. You qualify faithful men, and you train them. Now, our church participates in training our missionaries, um, and one of the things that we do for that is because we as a local church don't have the resources to train people to, to um, go plant churches and unreached people groups, um, we, we even trusted our trainees, if you will, our faithful men and women, to Radius. We send them there. Um, we can train them in Bible and theology, but we can't um, train them in linguistics. And I mean, maybe one day we will be able to, but we don't have those resources now. I doubt we'll ever have them. So we've pooled resources with other churches to see Radius founded and grow, and, and we send our people there for training. And we feel the responsibility for that. We don't even think it's an option that our people are trained. If somebody came to us and said, I feel called to go, and I just talked to this missions agency, and they're willing to take me now, and they have two to four weeks of deputation training, etc., and that's good, and I want to do that, we would tell them, well, you're not going to do that as one of our missionaries, because we're responsible to entrust these things to faithful men. We're able to teach others also, and we have a high bar of what that training looks like, and so we're going to put you through that. You're going to be required. It's actually a requirement for our church. I would encourage you, I can't tell you to require it for your church, I would encourage you and your churches to set a high bar for training. You're sending people to do the hardest thing in the world. It was hard for me to plant a church in my own language, in my own culture, in my own hometown where I was born and raised. After being seminary trained, after being in pastoral ministry at another church for six years, it was still hard to plant a church. Now I can't imagine going to plant a church in an unreached people a language I don't know, a culture I don't know, in one of the hardest places in the world, and, and I have two to four weeks of training? That's insanity, folks. I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to say this, I don't say that this is intentional on sending agencies part, but I'm going to tell you, if you as a church leader know that you're doing that to missions candidates, you as a church leader ought to call on your church kindly, graciously, to repent of doing that to candidates. There is no love in letting people run to the field quickly. None. You want to love them? Slow them down. Get them to get trained. Make sure they have godly character. And then send them. There is no love in sending someone out who, by the way, you're skeptical about with regard to their character. I tell you this, if it doesn't hurt your church to send them, don't send them. I mean hurt them because you, you feel like this person is great, I don't want to send them. I, I've got a guy, I mentioned Rob earlier, Rob was one of my elder candidates, he was my next elder. And Brandon Buser comes over to his house and has some conversation with him and the next thing I know, Rob's calling me up saying, Beth and I are going to go um, to Radius, get trained and go plant a church in an unreached language group. And I felt like Rob gutted me. I felt gutted as a pastor. Rob was one of our main guys in the church at the time. He was our next elder, and we saw him as the, part of the future of our church. It, it like gutted us to see them go. And then he said to me, hey, Chad, by the way, I want to go after Jason. Jason is my associate pastor who's like my right arm. I don't even know if I could function as a pastor without him, honestly. You know, I mean, somebody has to counsel people. They're not coming to see me, so they go see him. You could imagine why. So they, they go see Jason. <clears throat> He's like my right arm. I, I couldn't survive without that brother, and Rob says, I want to go ask Jason and his wife if they'll come with us. Is that okay? I said, yeah, that's okay, and I got off the phone and wanted to curse at Rob. But at the same time, I thought, you know what? So I called Jason. I said, Jason, Rob's going to come talk to you. You need to pray about and seriously consider what he's asking you to do. It would gut me for him to leave. But what, who else would we want to send? Who else would we want to send? Who did Antioch send out, folks? The Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Their pastors the whole last year that's who they sent. They didn't send out someone who was able to fog a mirror on a cold morning. 
They didn't send out someone who no one in the church would notice was gone. They sent out their best. You've got to qualify these folks and train them and send them out. Send out the people that it just rips your soul to send them out. If the church at Antioch can survive without the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, my church can survive without me, without Jason, without Rob, without any of these guys. Stop sending people you're, you, <coughs> who don't cost your church to lose them. It ought to cost you to lose them. Finally, you, you don't only qualify and train them, if you will. Commission, call, qualify, train. But, but you've got to care for them, pray for them, and support them. You guys hear that? Care for them, pray for them, and support them. Um, I, I want you to grasp this. The parachurch sending organization is not the church. Radius International as a training organization is not the church. Those organizations are helpful to the church, but they're not the church. There are bridesmaids. They're not the bride. Thus, the primary responsibility for care, prayer, and financial support does not lie with those parachurch organizations. It lies with the church. It lies with your local church. Um, care, Philippians 2, I had turned to you there earlier. What, what's, what's going on in Philippians 2? The church has the responsibility, they sense the responsibility, send Epaphroditus to help Paul. He needed help at the time. So they sent Epaphroditus to help him. They were caring for him. Get your missions team, if you will, to see themselves less as a committee and more as support for missionaries. Missions committees. Maybe abandon, just maybe abolish the word committee. Starts to confuse people as to what you're there for. I mean, your really primary business isn't to make policies and vote on things, right? I'm not saying you don't have to have policies or you don't have to maybe vote on something. But what's your primary business? To support missionaries, right? So start to see yourself that way. That includes, you know, um, getting people to get to know the mission-sending organization. We, I was so blessed recently by our guys who um, we had some of our people going um, to their mission-sending organization to to speak with their sending organization and, and go through the sort of orientation, et cetera, for the organization. And three men from our church, these are, these are businessmen. They are full-time businessmen. They're not paid by the church. They're not elders in the church. They're godly men in the church who want to support missionaries. Three of them paid um, for flights and flew out to another state and went to this orientation for several days to get to know the sending organization on behalf of our local church, on behalf of our missionaries, because they want to care for them well. Some of those men have now come to me and said, hey, we have another missionary going to another one. You want to hop a plane next month and go and meet with that sending organization and get to know them? How else are you going to communicate your expectations as a local church to your sending organizations that your missionaries are going through? How are you going to really partner with them? If, if you don't start engaging with them. And you've got to communicate expectations. And I've had sending organizations push back on expectations, by the way. Um, I, 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 with our very first missionary we sent out, I actually uh, said to the sending organization um, or the agency, we, we require that she know the language fluently of the people she's going to before she shares the gospel. In fact, if she starts sending back stories of evangelizing people and bringing them to Christ three months in, we're going to ask her to come home. She needs to stay. Long haul, she needs to learn the language and then start to communicate the gospel. And they laughed at me on the telephone. Do you know that? And they said, well, that's not going to be acceptable. I said, what's the only way she's going with you? She had a tough time finding a team who would take her under those conditions. Tough time. Sending people to care for them, send people to care for them occasionally. Pro provide a plan for some kind of come up, some kind of plan for pastoral care. They're out there. What are you going to do? What happens? Is somebody going to go help them, visit them? How's that going to happen? Are you just going to leave that all to the sending organization? I don't encourage you to do that. They're part of your church. Care for them. Now, do we have all this worked out at our church? Certainly not. We're trying to work it out because we have this flood of missionaries. And we're going. How do we do this? 
plan for their furlough. I mean, are you thinking about who can take cars for them? Are you listing out who has houses they can stay in? Are you thinking about how to plan for their furlough? Make it easier on them. What, plan for what happens when they finish. What happens when they're done? Where do they live? Who's watching out for them then? Care is comprehensive, beginning to end. When they come home, their support shouldn't be dropping off. Well, you did the job. Thank you very much. You're on your own. Figure it out now. Prayer. Pray for them. Man, Ephesians 6, what does Paul say? Be praying for me that I might speak the gospel boldly. Colossians 4, be praying that a door might open for the opportunity to, to, to teach the gospel. Matthew chapter 9, be raise, Jesus says, be raise, praying for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for them by name every week if you can. We pray for our missionaries by name from the pulpit every Sunday. You know what the result of that is? And we have several of them now, so the prayers have gotten long. I mean, I pastoral prayers about 15 minutes now before my sermon. Because i got to work through our missionaries as part of the reason. Right? But you know what the result of that is? Our missionaries come home, they sit in small groups with people they've never met before who are new to the church, and they say, oh, this is so-and-so-and-so-and-so. And then every person there whom they've never met before because they've been gone for how, however many years sits there and goes, oh, I know exactly who you are. We're praying for you all the time. And they're kind of stunned by it. What, you know who we are? You pray for me? It's also easier for them to raise money for those new people, by the way. But anyway, pray for them in your congregational meetings. Pray for them from the pulpit. Pray for them in your congregational prayer meetings. Have a missions prayer meeting. Our group decided to start one every quarter. Just, we just get all the requests of missionaries, we meet, and we pray for them. By the grace of God, our prayer meetings are packed out. And we pray for our missionaries. And we tell our people from the pulpit, it's not an option. It's not just to be nice to pray for our missionaries. They need us to pray for them. They're at war. Teach your families to do family worship and pray for your missionaries in family worship. We just have the little cards in my family. We read through the scripture, we pray, and we, read for the, we pray for the different missionaries that we have the cards for. So my kids know who our missionaries are. We know, we, they know what's going on. We pray for them. Finally, support. Help them financially. Encourage your people to participate in helping them financially. Let your people know. You know, Piper summed it up, go, send, or disobey. Right, those are your options with regard to the Great Commission. Go, send, or disobey. Let them know. They're partners with their missionaries. Build relationships, by the way, with other pastors. Can I just give one suggestion that's been helping for us? Start building relationships with other pastors or other missions people, other people from other churches who are interested. Even if you're not a pastor, you can do this. And, and because your, you, your church might be raising up missionaries and other church isn't, and they're looking for people to support, but how do they know who this person is? This person's cold calling. So what we've tried to do is try to establish relationships with other churches because we can't even support financially all of our missionaries. So I can call the pastor up and go, hey, I've got a candidate for you. You want to support them. Can you help them out? And I would like to do that in areas lar largely close to our city so when they come home for a furlough, they don't have to fly all over the country to try to make sure they can keep their support up. We have a church uh, about an hour north of us. Every year they call me now. We did a, a women's missions fundraiser and we did a, a men's missions fundraiser and we need to know if you have a missionary that we can, we just want to give them a check for $15,000. Every year. Now the relationship's built to the point where they actually say to us, hey, all we do now as a church is raise money for your church's missionaries. So can you send, them to send speakers <laughs> to our stuff? They're not raising anybody up right now, but they're looking to engage. The average local church doesn't want to be unengaged with helping missionaries. They want to, but they don't know who these people are who are cold calling them. When I get emails from missionaries saying, I'd like to meet with you, I'm like, I don't know who you are. You could be some Nigerian person trying to get into my bank account for all I know. Right? So I don't... Help, these, help your missionaries build relationships, especially the churches near you, so they don't have to travel everywhere to raise money. 
Listen, I can't tell you how to apply all this, but I, I can tell you these are your responsibilities. And I'm, over time, I just realized there's a gigantic clock in the back. <laughs> and it's telling me I'm late. So if you have any questions, you can save them for Q&A. Let, 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 let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we are thankful. We are thankful for just the, the kindness you show us and by your Spirit calling the church to engage in the mission of making your Son known where he is not. We pray that churches would be faithful to that. That we would find joy being able to support missionaries, being able to support seeing the gospel made known where it is not, seeing Jesus named among language groups who've never heard of him. Father, we would take on what are biblical responsibilities of praying and caring and supporting, that we would understand that, that we really call and commission and, and that we need to be responsible to qualify faith, who are faithful to send out and who are not and, and to train to make sure that they're ready. Father, we ask that you would, you would work in us by your Spirit in such a way that we would no longer push that responsibility off to just a few folks who seem interested or just a couple of young people who heard a mission speaker, but we would understand that it's the responsibility of the local church and it's the responsibility of her pastors and elders and it's the responsibility of her members. And that as a result of this, Christ would be known in all the earth that every tribe and tongue and nation would sing to the Lamb who was slain for our sins. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.